Is it a good day, church? Amen. Thank you so much, choir. Did you all appreciate the choir's offering this morning? Well, we have much to celebrate, of course, even the life given to our sister Emma, the life given through Christ our King, who we celebrate is coming this Christmas season, and we have His Word to celebrate this morning, so I'd like to invite you to turn to John chapter 1, and we're just going to consider this morning the first three verses in John's Gospel, John chapter 1. If you want to, you could look in the Pew Bible and find that on page 886, 886 John chapter 1. Beginning in verse 1, hear now the word of God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful this morning that we can celebrate your love in sending your Son for us to save us. We might be redeemed through his sacrifice and his resurrection. We want to celebrate him today. And so even now as we consider your word, open our hearts to get even a clearer glimpse of who Jesus is, that these truths might guide us through this Christmas season. As we seek, as the choir reminded us this this morning, to adore him. Help us to adore you, our Lord Jesus, for we pray in your name. Amen. Well, if you've been paying attention at all this morning, you've seen that there is great clarity here as to who Jesus is. But that clarity does not extend often beyond these walls. In fact, there has been great debate over the thousands of years since Jesus' coming as to who he actually was. For instance, the novelist, the British novelist A.N. Wilson says, quote, he was a good Jewish lad with a brilliant flair for shrewd moral teaching, but would have been horrified to think of a church, let alone people worshiping him as if he were divine. Or Professor Barbara Thiering at Sydney University, she has a unique insight into Jesus. She has written, quote, Jesus was married and had three children. Then he divorced and remarried. He did not die on the cross, but rather went with Paul on his missionary journeys. And it was with Paul and Philippi that Jesus met his second wife. Morton Smith, the professor of ancient history at Columbia University, has revealed that Jesus was a magician who influenced his followers with hypnosis and illusion. The Episcopal Bishop John Shelby Spong says he was not born of a virgin since Mary had probably been violated. Jesus himself was married. The wedding at Canaan was probably his own. And my favorite, uh, John Allegro, a Semitic scholar, has said that Jesus was not an actual person at all, but a code name alluding to the use of a hallucinogenic drug. And, and uh, he says, the writers of the New Testament uh, were members of an ancient fertility quote, cult, and they committed their secrets to writing in this elaborate cryptogram, which is the New Testament. 
And so you see that over thousands of years, and today as well, there has been the debate and the question, who is Jesus? I wonder how you would answer that question. Who is he? Well, today, and and God willing, next Sunday, and our Sunday morning, and our Christmas Eve, Sunday evening service, we're going to consider who is Jesus, and not from some esteemed professor and a university, but we're going to actually consider someone who knew him. We're going to consider the words of John, the beloved apostle. We find ourselves here in John chapter 1. Now, John's an interesting book, uh, because John doesn't tell us the facts of Christmas, So if you want a manger and a crowded inn and shepherds and magi and a guiding light, you need to turn to Matthew or Luke. But John won't won't lay out what happened. What he's going to do is tell it what it means. So not what happened at Christmas, but why. And John begins this wonderful prologue by, by telling us who Jesus is. In fact, there's Really, well, there's more than this, but let me just share with you three truths this morning as to who is Christ from these first three verses in John's gospel. We see, first of all, Jesus is God. Secondly, Jesus loves God. And thirdly, Jesus reveals God. So first of all, Jesus is God. In the beginning, well, how do you finish that sentence? Well, it depends what book you're reading. Right? If you were a Jew and you read, her, read in the beginning, you would automatically think of the very first words of Scripture. In the beginning, God. Genesis 1, 1. But you know, it's John who is reminding us of that wonderful passage as he begins his gospel. Instead of saying, in the beginning, God, he says there in verse 1, in the beginning was the Word. Now, what, what, what or who is the Word? And we're going to flesh this out next week, but just look in verse 14, just going to give you the answer, if you will. And the Word became flesh. The Word that John talks about is Jesus. In verse 17, he clearly identifies him as Jesus. So, John, just for a moment, just take out in your mind, take out the phrase, the Word, and insert Jesus. And so, John is writing, in the beginning was Jesus. In other words, he doesn't begin his gospel in the start of Jesus' ministry like Mark does. or He doesn't take us back to Abraham of old like Matthew does. Or even take us all the way back to Adam as Luke begins his gospel. But instead, what John does, he, we, we begin our understanding of the one we call Jesus from before time began. One commentator puts it this way. Without apology or qualification, John goes back in time beyond Bethlehem where Jesus was born and beyond Nazareth where he was conceived. Indeed, back beyond the beginning of time itself and allows us a glimpse of a glorious person who has an eternal existence. I tell you this morning, based upon the authority of the word of God, that before there was anything, there was Jesus. You go all the way back, go back to the beginning, you will find Jesus. He himself would say in the book of Revelation, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. His existence did not start 2,000 years ago in some stable in Bethlehem. God has always existed in Christ. There's oh, go back as far as you want, and you're going to find life, and that life is Jesus He was there in the beginning. And if he was there in the beginning, he must therefore be what? 
God, which is exactly what John tells us reading on in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. We're going to come back to that in a moment, but look how he finishes verse 1. And the Word was God. Jesus is God. Jesus is not a God. There is one God, and Jesus is that one God. Now, more on that in a moment, okay? But at the very least, let our hearts be filled, as the choir, I think, was, was inviting us to today, to be filled with awe and wonder that the baby in the manger is none other than the Lord God himself. And he grew up, of course, and the one who turned water into wine or cast out demons or taught on the hillside and picked up children and put them in his lap and eventually was pinned to a cross and there he died is none other than the Lord God from beginning of time. In the beginning was Jesus. He is God. And if he existed in the beginning, well, we know that he must have created everything. In fact, that's what John's inviting us to think about back in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created. Well, that's what he tells us here in verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And so anything in the category of made is made through Jesus. That, that pretty much sums up everything other than God. You owe your existence, and everyone owes his existence, and everything owes his existence to the Word, to Jesus. Jesus is God. That's important for us to hear in this day, that Jesus is not another prophet or sage that points to God. He is the God to whom all true prophets and sages pointed to. This, I think, forces a decision upon us. We have, we have done well in our culture to take out the confrontation that Christmas originally presented us with. That, that you, you have, of course, in Christ, this one who claims to be the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega, the one who the Bible says over and over is God. You're forced then with a decision. You, you can either consider him to be a madman, Right? Or at least a con man and run from him. Or you could believe he's right and you bow to him and you orient your entire life around him. But the one thing you can't do is ad simply admire him. I really like that man who claimed to be the Lord of the universe, but I don't think he is. No, you see, he forces us to decide. You either hate him as they did in his day, or you give him your heart in worship, I would recommend the latter. Give Christ your heart in worship, for he is God. We rightly say with the Magi, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? For we have come to worship him. You rightly join the angel chorus declaring, holy, holy, holy is the Lord worthy to be worshipped. You rightly join the 24 elders who, who declare, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. You rightly sing with the saints the song of the Lamb. Great and amazing are your deeds, our Lord God the Almighty. You rightly fall at his feet with Thomas in wonder and joy, saying, My Lord and my God. Merry Christmas. Jesus is God. Second truth that John tells us, somewhat paradoxically, not somewhat, very paradoxically, Jesus loves God. 
We know he is God, that's clear, but we also see that he is with God. Look again in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Now John wants to emphasize this. He, he repeats himself. Look in verse 2. He was in the beginning with God. So the question rises, of course, is how can the Word, how can Jesus be with God and be God? Now John is teaching, as the rest of Scripture does, there is one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And that one God is plural. So he's with God, there's distinct persons, and he was God. There is one God, not two. And so what we understand from this and the rest of the Bible is that there is one divine essence. And John says in that divine essence, there are two persons. Now later on in Scripture, we're going to read there's actually not two, there's three, the Holy Spirit. Now, of course, this, this is a great mystery here. Well, at the very least, this teaches us that God is not like you, and God is not like me, which is probably a good thing, don't you think? That God, rather, is triune. We call this the Trinity. Now, believe it or not, there's much I don't understand about that. I remember uh, long ago when my children were younger, and we, we, I remember when Anastasia, she was, back when she was five years old, and, and, and she shared a room with her little brother, Josiah, who was about three. And we had one of these baby, you know, the baby monitors that you put in the room. And you could hear them cry from another part of the house. And we had just put them down. And I, I remember this, that Josiah asked his big sister. And he said, Anna, is Jesus God? And Anna, being the theologian that she is, she says, yes, Josiah, Jesus is God. And then Josiah said, I thought we only had one God. And Anna says, of course we only have one God, silly. Right? And I, in fact, I ran and got a pen and was going to start writing some of this down, trying to help, let, let my children help me figure this out. It's a mystery here. Right? The Trinity is confusing. And yet, I want you to understand it is radically relevant to your life. This is what I want you to get today. See, I think so often... We think, okay, we believe in the Trinity, we're Christians, that's what we do, but it makes no difference. It's one of those theological beliefs we just put up on the shelf, we adhere to it, but it just sits up there and collects dust. In fact, one theologian said, the Trinity has been increasingly divorced from the life and worship of the church. For the overwhelming majority of Western Christians, it is considered more a mathematical conundrum than a vital matter of everyday faith and worship. So what I want to do is for the next I don't know, about 10 minutes, explain to you how the Trinity is radically relevant to the way you live. To such a point, we'll never put it on the shelf again. Now, I'm not going to explain to you the Trinity. I've done all I can with that. But I'm going to tell you why it's important. This is my Christmas gift to you, okay? All right? And so we're going to find out what has vast implications on your understanding of God, on your understanding of the world, on your understanding of self and on your understanding of the work of Christ on the cross. So what is, how does the Trinity, what do we learn about God and the fact that he is triune? Well, you see this phrase, once again in verse 1, that the word was with God. And then again, it's repeated there in verse 2. He's with God. Do not think that what John is trying to communicate is that Jesus was close to God, like they were proximate, they were in the same place. That's not what this word with means. It literally is he was towards God. 
He was in a relationship with God. He was with God in that way. And sometimes we use the word with like that. Even in the Bible, we read in Mark that Jesus chose 12 of his disciples to be apostles, to be, Mark says, to be with him. So what does Jesus mean when he says that he chose them to be with him? That he chose them just to be close by him? Well, that's true, of course, but it's far more than that. He chose them to be in this deep abiding relationship with him. And we even use the word like this. Sometimes I'll, I'll take a legger out on a date, and I'll go and wash up, and she being the beautiful woman she is, she'll catch an eye of some other young man, and I'll come up, and I'll tap him on the shoulder, and I'll say, she's with me, right? I, I'm not implying that we're, we're in close proximity together, that we are in a relationship together. And so when it says the word was with God, you need to understand, they're not, John's not saying they were close like in, in location, but they were close in love. And so you go to eternity past, and what do you find before there was anything? You find a relationship, a dynamic relationship of love and joy and happiness. That the Father and the Son, they, they love each other and have always have loved each other. And they communicate with one another and they delight in each other. And in case you think I'm reading too much into this word with, just read the rest of the New Testament. And it seems to me every time God speaks from heaven, he lets everybody know he loves Jesus. And his baptism, this is my son whom I love. And his transfiguration, what does he say? This is my son whom I love. I love him. And when Jesus speaks about the Father, he communicates the same thing in John 14. So that the world may know I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded or John 15, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So Christianity alone teaches God in his very nature is a dynamic relationship of love. This is why John later will write, God is love. Don't, don't read that and think, okay, God is loving. That, no, he's saying far more than that. God in his very nature is love. Because God is plural. See, if you have a solitary being, you could have wisdom. You could have power. You could have righteousness. But do you know what you can't have in a solitary being? You, you can't have love. L love requires an object. Love desires to be reciprocated. A and therefore, for, for God to be love, he must be plural. Right? And in fact... I would suggest, as others have, is that, is that not only are, do you have two, but there's, you need a third object to both share your delight in. Just like you and your spouse might share your love by delighting in something outside of you two, right? There's a third that you can actually delight in, and this is what we see in God. I love how the 11th century theologian, Richard of St. Victor, put it. He says, when we peer into the heart of God, we find not solitary absoluteness, the alone with the alone, but the mystery of eternal love and relationship, which is, I think, exactly what John is telling us if you look down in verse 18. You see what he says. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Now, in my Bible, and maybe yours too, I have a little footnote by the phrase, who is at the Father's side, right? And I look down, and I find that footnote, and in the Greek, it literally says, in the bosom of the Father. 
Now, we don't, we don't use the word bosom much anymore. In fact, all the, new trans, all the, the current translations, they all drop the phrase bosom, and they, they put something like the ESV does, he's at the Father's side. I mean, it got me started thinking as I was studying this passage this week, the Bible actually talks a lot about the, the, the Father's bosom. In, in Isaiah 40, it talks about how he'll gather us, famous passage, he'll gather us like a lamb and hold us next to his, his bosom. Or we, we look in, in Luke's gospel, and we see, remember, Lazarus who dies, and where does he go? He goes to Abraham's bosom. And so I was, I'm, I'm trying to, when I was studying this, I was really thinking about what, what does this mean exactly? And why do they, why do they, draw, does it mean chest? Is it something different? And so I googled bosom, okay? And I, you know, I wasn't thinking very clearly at the time. So, you know, it was like alarm bells in the pastor's office. Um, the internet was not helpful, let me just say, do not google bosom. So, um, I, <laughs> I actually pulled off an old Bible encyclopedia that we never use because we've got the internet now, and, and this, this time was helpful. Let me give you the definition of bosom. Uh, bosom is not an anatomical term, but refers to an area or an enclosure formed by the chest and the arms of a person. An individual lying in the bosom of a friend can hear the beating of a friend's heart, the friend's arms, almost by reflex action, encircle such a person with love and protection. In fact, is it not the same author, John, who will later write in John 13, at the Last Supper, there was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. See, that was John. Why why does he write that? Why does John say about himself, I I have my head on Jesus' chest? Right? Well, he tells us, because he loves me, and I, I love him. I mean, you, you ever lie on the sofa and, and without permission? I mean, who does this? You're lying on the sofa and without permission, someone lays right down next to you and cuddles up to you and puts their head on your, on your chest, right? Who can do that? There are not many people in your life that can do that. Only those people who are in the closest relationship with you. And so the same guy who specifically wrote, I lied on Jesus' bosom, says in John 1 verse 18 that the word or Jesus had his head before time began on the Father's bosom. You see, in God, you have three perfectly happy persons who are always in love with one another, who never say, you serve me who are always serving and giving and glorifying the other. God is infinitely happy and infinitely loving and experiencing that love and joy and intimacy forever and ever endlessly. And that that not only tells us about who God is, that tells us about the world in which he made. You see, if God is singular, catch this, follow me. If God is singular, what comes first, love or power? Right? Well, it's power, because there's nothing to love. And so you have to have this exercise of power, this create this world with power in order to move to love. But Christianity alone says, no, in the beginning, there was love within God. Before he did anything powerful, he, he loved, he was, he was in love. And he creates this world, not because he's lacking love, not because God is lonely like you sometimes hear. He wants to share that love. 
And so because our God is plural, this world is about love. That's why God says, listen, you want to know what the greatest commandments are? It's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. It's to love your neighbor as yourself. We learn how this world works. And even more than that, you learn about yourself. What is the most important thing in your life? Is it power? Is it money? Is it status? Or is it relationships? Right? You're not going to hear many people on their deathbed say, I wish, just wish I made more money. You're not going to find many people say, I just wish I got around to painting the kitchen cabinets. Or I really, you know, I have one regret. My TV was just too small. Right? What do they say? I wish I spent more time with those I love. Or they say, those I love where our relationships are broken. I just wish, my dying wish, is that that, that brokenness can be bridged. Right? It's about, it's about love. Right? It, that, that's who we are. We want to love. We want to be loved. Now, if the materialists are right, if the secularists are right, they believe, they'll teach you this is an impersonal universe, and the world was created through violent eruption and random chance, and humans evolved by surviving better than the rest, right? It's a tooth-and-claw world, and it's the strong eating the weak, and that's how we got to the top. And, and their, their model is the essence of the world is power. The essence of the world is survival. But if you know your heart at all, the essence of your life is not power. It's not even survival. In fact, you know your heart and all, you would give up, you would end your survival for those you love. Right? You, the, the essence of who we are is we're made to love. Why? Because you are made in the image of a triune God who has and is always in a relationship of love, and he says, I'm going to make you like me. Therefore, you, because you're in God's image, you want to be loved, and you want to love. The problem is, we're not very good at it, right? This is why Jesus has come. He's come to deal with our problems, as you consider thirdly this morning. Jesus reveals God. You look back in verse 1, it's interesting that John calls Jesus the Word. Why, why does he call him the Word? Well, in this day when John wrote, you had really two cultures. You had the Greek-Roman culture and then, of course, the, the Hebrew culture. And both cultures had a concept of this phrase called the Word. And I think John is drawing on both concepts. So let's begin with the Greeks. The Greeks believed there was an order, the, the, the philosophers... There's an order to this universe. The universe, they would say, is not a, it's not a chaos, it's a cosmos. There, there's a reason behind the universe. There's a reason for existence. There's a reason for life. There's purpose. They call that reason the Greek word logos, where we get the English word logic, but it's also translated as word. So in the beginning was the logos. That's the literal Greek, and we translate that as word. And so the, Gre- the Greeks would say, we need to know what the Logos is. We need to know what the universe is for in order to know how we're supposed to live. So let me give you an example. Let's say you're, you're, you come from a primitive culture and you meet me and I, I give you a gift. I give, let's say I give you a toaster, okay? And here's a toaster and I don't explain to you what the toaster is for. 
now you have this toaster and you have no idea what it's for and you, 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 know, you try to maybe play catch with a toaster and you know, well that doesn't seem to work out well and eventually you plug it in and it generates heat and you say, I know what it is, it's a, it's a foot warmer and so you climb in bed and you put the toaster in the bed, right? And it will warm your feet, of course, but it will do a lot more than that, right? Because that's, that's not the logos of the toaster. The logos of the toaster is to, make, to cook bread, is to make toast, so that what the Greeks said is we need to discover the logos of the universe in order to know how we are supposed to live. In order we align ourselves with that, life will go well. And so you had all these schools of philosophy. And, and, and some said, okay, the logos is this. And others said, no, 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 logos is this. And others said, no, the, the, the logos or the reason for the world is this. And they, they all argued with each other. But the one thing they agreed on is that the logos was discovered through contemplation. Right? We all had to get down, reason, and discuss. If we do that, philosophy, that's going to get us to the Logos. And here comes John, and he just blows up the world with an idea never heard before. And he says, yes, there, there is a reason to this universe. You're right. Yes, there is a reason to life. Yes, there is a Logos. But the Logos is not a philosophical idea. It's a person. And it's a person you can know and love for the Logos became flesh. His name is Jesus. And you want to know the reason of your life, the purpose for existence, you start to live for Jesus, right? And you'll no longer be trying to, trying to warm your bed with a toaster, right? You'll know, you'll know how to live. You'll discover how to live. Jesus is the purpose for living. I, I love the story that Harry Ironside tells, the uh, famous pastor at Moody Church from Old he was once preaching in an open-air kind of evangelistic rally, and a very prominent uh, agnostic walked up to him in front of you know, hundreds, if not thousands, of people and reached up to Ironside and handed him a card. And Harry Ironside took the card, and the card read, Sir, I challenge you to debate me the question, agnosticism versus Christianity, in the Academy of Science Hall next Sunday afternoon at 4 o'clock. So Ironside, he reads the card out loud to everyone, and then he says, I'm very much interested in this challenge, therefore I will be glad to agree to debate on the following condition. Bring along with you one man who for years was under the power of evil habits from which he cannot deliver himself, but who on some occasion heard the glorification of agnosticism, and whose heart and mind, as he listened to such an address, was so deeply stirred that he went away from that meeting saying, henceforth, I too am an agnostic. And as a result of imbibing that particular philosophy, found that a new power had come into his life. Bring one person, he said, who after hearing you speak, found peace of mind, victory over sin, and a purpose of living, all because he became an agnostic. You bring one, and I'll bring a hundred, and I will debate you. And the man dropped his head and walked away, because he could find no such man. Merry Christmas. There is a logos. There is a reason for life. His name is Jesus, and when you live for him, you will discover how to live too. But I mentioned that it wasn't, the Greeks had their idea of the Logos. The Hebrews had another idea, right? And it, it lines up much more with our understanding of 
of the word, word. The word is how God reveals himself. So you read the scriptures and you will read over and over again. The, the word of God came to me saying, the word of the Lord spoke to them. He sent forth his word. Right? And this is how you would identify the Hebrew religion it, different than any other religion in that day. They were people of a scripture. And they would memorize it and meditate it and study it. And people would preach it to them. And they did so because that was how they understood who God was. That's how they understood God's way and God's character, that it was revealed through his word. Now, I mentioned that kind of makes sense to us, I think. Because we understand people reveal themselves to us through their words. Sometimes today you hear people say, you know, if I, if I could just see God, then I would believe. Right? And for some reason we elevate the experience of sight as if it has more authority than the experience of hearing. See, God's not interested in us seeing him. He's much more interested in us hearing him. So he's not going around showing himself, but he is going around explaining himself, speaking to us. And, and that's what reveals a person. I mean, the clearest expression of a person is in their words, right? You may see someone, you might be able to infer something about them. For instance, let's say I was preaching, and just use your imagination here. But let's say while I was preaching, someone had their head back and their mouth was open, right? And they were out cold asleep, right? And so, by the way, I see everything that goes on while I preach, just to let you know. Um, fair warning. Okay? So just imagine, just pretend like that happened. I know it's hard to believe. But, um, and so I would see this, and I might infer, wow, uh, they probably got a call sometime around 2 a.m., right? There was an emergency, and they went over and wanted to be Christ to someone else, and they were praying with them and spent the whole kind of night praying with them. And I would come up to that person and say, wow, it was a, it was a rough night, didn't get much sleep. And he might say to me, no, just imagine, no, your sermon's just really boring, okay? And I, I tried to stay awake, but it was impossible, um, and so it was boring. See, it's when I hear the words that you actually reveal yourself to me. Or, or take, take this example. I might say, have you ever met so-and-so? Let's say, let's say they worship in this church with us. Have you ever met Lenny? Okay. And, and maybe you've seen Lenny from across the sanctuary, but you've never spoken to Lenny, what would you say? You would say, no, I, I've never met him. It's only when we speak to each other that we're willing to say, okay, yes, I have met them. You see, it's our words that reveal who, who we are. Well, Jesus Christ is the word of God. And so what John is saying is you can't know God except through his words. Except through Jesus. You may know about God. You may obey God. You, may, you, you, you might believe in God, but you've never met him. You, you don't know him unless you've met him through Jesus. Jesus is the revelation of God. And in fact, he's uniquely qualified. As you see once again in verse 18, no one has ever seen God, right? No one's seen him. The only God, that's referring to Jesus, once again, hitting on the Trinity, who is at the Father's side. There his love for the Father. He is what? He has made him known. So if you want to know God, you can only do so through the word, which is Jesus. He comes to make God known, which means God wants to be known. Right? God is not indifferent. God is not aloof. 
God is not distant. God is not hiding from you. He is, he is shouting throughout this world to anyone who has ears, I want to meet you. Listen to me. Know who I am. God is an extrovert. He seeks relationships with people. He wants you to know him. He wants to get in a relationship because he who loves his son and the spirit loves you as well. And he wants that love to be reciprocated. Right? And so God has come. Jesus has come to, to, to reveal God to us. In other words, he hasn't come simply to give you stuff. Christianity is not how you get stuff. Jesus does not come on Christmas with a bag over his shoulder and say, hey, you want forgiveness? Here you go. And hey, you want eternal life? Here you go. And hey, you want help in a jam? And here you go. And disappear in the middle of the night and say, I'll see you next year. Right? That's not Christianity. He sent his son because he wants you to know him because he loves you. For God so loved the world that he sent his son. And he wants that love to be reciprocated. He wants you to love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He, he sent Jesus so you could. And I would suggest to you this morning as we prepare to close, the more you know God through Jesus, the more you hear from him, the more you will love him. And the more you love him, the more you'll want to obey him, the more you'll trust him, the more you'll give to him your plans, your heart, and your dreams. Because Jesus has come to show them to us. Of course, the clearest communication of, of God, of the love of God, of the righteousness of God, of the mercy of God, of the grace of God, is seen in the crucifixion of Jesus. So the baby we celebrate next, a week from Monday, grew up. And he was killed. And on the cross, you listen to his words, and he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And as I share with you about every other month, every time Jesus ever prayed, he prayed, My Father, my Father, my Father, taught us to pray, he said, Pray like this, our Father. There is only one time Jesus ever prayed in which he did not address God as his Father, and it's when he is on the cross, and he says, My God, my God. Why doesn't he call him Father? Well, just listen to the prayer. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's been abandoned by his Father. He's been, according to Christ, forsaken by his Father. And so if you think about this, you think that the cross... You see, I told you the Trinity is going to help you understand the cross. See, the cross, the eternal relationship within the Trinity is broken. The Father pulls away. The cross is where God pours out His love on you. The cross is where you receive love. But for Christ, the cross is where He loses love. The cross is a loss of love to Him. Have you ever lost love? Through death, divorce, you know there is no greater pain than the loss of love. And I tell you, the greatest love you have is like a raindrop compared to the ocean of love that the Father has with the Son and the Son has with the Father. And the Son's relationship with the Father is broken on the cross. Why? So your broken relationship 
with your Creator can be restored. Merry Christmas. Jesus lost everything so that you could gain a relationship with God. Maybe you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. I implore you to know the love of God, to listen to Jesus, listen to what he says, listen to him say, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Listen to when he says through the Spirit, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You'll be saved. There could be no greater Christmas gift this year than for you to be reconciled to a holy God by bowing your knee in loving and repentant faith to King Jesus. And for my Christian brothers and sisters, I hope this truth will carry you through Christmas and then for the rest of eternity. That you would consider this Christmas the degree in which the Son loves you as he breaks his relationship with the Father on the cross. And if you do, I'm telling you, you will find power to love others as you have been loved. It's hard to be generous when you're when you can't pay the mortgage, right? But when you have a lot of money, okay, I'm, I'm free. I can, I, it's easier to be generous. It's hard to love people if your heart is empty. It's hard to love if your heart is broken. But to the degree in which you let Jesus pour out his love in you through the cross, you will become rich in love, and you will find it, is, it becomes easy to be generous, to love others, in light of how Christ has loved you. So I tell you one last time. Merry Christmas. Jesus has come to bring the Father's love to you. That you might love him and love others for the glory of our God. Our Father in heaven, we are eternally 